Welcome to Unheard's podcast with me, Tim Montgomery, and Aisha Hazarika. And today we've left the safety of the Shard, and we're in the studios of ITN in Westminster, and we're joined by Robert Peston. And it's an absolute joy to be here. As uh, I think you slightly over-glamorised where we're sitting. I wouldn't, this doesn't look like a high-tech studio. It's, as you, it's, it's what we call the training room, so it's a bit of a mess, but it's a joy to be with you. We won't let anyone know we're surrounded by cardboard boxes rather than high <laughs> we're technology. We're basically in a storeroom. <laughs> Welcome to the glamour of my life is all I can tell you. Well, um, thanks very much, um, Robert. And it's good to see you because um, this might be a slightly unfair question, but uh, enormous political events happening in the UK at the moment. Uh, Theresa May going to major summits and um, the flagship political Sunday programme that you present is is off air it's a slight if if itv itn is trying to establish itself as a real competitor to the the bbc it it seems an odd decision am i am i asking an unfair question of someone who obviously i'm sure didn't take this decision uh so i cannot no listen i can't uh pretend that it's anything other than you know frustrating that we are uh, off air, uh, or you know, we went off air a couple of weeks ago, um, and I mean the way that ITV works is they plan a number of episodes for the year, um, and that's based on you know what the program costs and you know their sort of own ideas about you know what other things they've got and you know uh i actually had to sort of slightly shout and scream to get us into december this year um but you can assume that i'm having a very active discussion with itv about um next year's schedules because this is an incredibly important and interesting time in politics um i'm incredibly pleased with the way the program personal on sunday is gone you know we built up a a a, a, a big audience of about a million um, and the, our viewers appear to be very, very uh, sort of passionate about the programme, um, but they're also disappointed when we're not on air. And, and so, you know, I, you know I'm not going to pretend that I don't share your uh, frustration. That said, you know, you and I uh, are people, uh, you know, who believe in market economies and the difference between ITV and the BBC is, you know, at ITV there is an imperative to make a profit um, and when you join a commercial organisation like ITV you go in with your eyes open that it's not like the BBC where, you know, I'm not saying that money doesn't matter at the BBC but they have other priorities um, and they are priorities that, you know, are a bit different from, from ITVs. Um, now, now, my own view is that uh, it is good for ITV to have impact in politics, partly apart from this, one of the things that I've noticed about the show is we generate a lot of uh, mentions in the press when we get a decent interview. Uh, most Sundays we get something which is picked up in the press the next day uh, and on the internet, in, you know, and, and ITV gets, in my view, a lot of free publicity or effectively free marketing and free advertising as a result of the pickup that the show gets. And sometimes I slightly wonder whether, you know, my boss is completely 
understand. I, I think that's valuable to them. And I, you know, I, I wonder sometimes whether they underestimate how valuable that is. But anyway, that is, you know, <laughs> welcome to my private grief. The key, the big thing to say not here. So, not so private now. Not so private, but the big thing to say is, I mean, just in case anybody's in any doubt, you know, I, you know I've loved coming to ITV. I love working for ITV. This is, you know, in the scale of frustrations, this isn't a, you know, this is a, it, it's, it's an argument that's, uh, that I'm having, you know, it's an internal argument I'm having, but it doesn't make me disillusioned with ITV or make me want to run away or any of those things because, you know, I've had the time of my life coming to ITV. Uh, uh, you know, I love doing the news job as political editor and I love doing the show. Um, so this is just one of those... Um, you know, there are frustrations in all jobs, as you know, Tim. There certainly are. And one of the freedoms that ITV is clearly giving you is to write books. Mm. And a very opinionated book as well. You've, you've got a book out, for those who, mm. who don't know, uh, WTF, selling very well, I, I understand. Um, but um, can, I, can I start with just how opinionated it is? You know, I've made a list of some of the policy recommendations that you make in this book. It, it's a book about the, uh, the political turmoil we're going through with Brexit and Trump. You advocate a wealth tax. Mm. Um, you challenge charitable relief for private schools. Mm. More borrowing. You, you criticise austerity. You sort of come out as a Keynesian. Um, more spending on the NHS, regional investment banks. Um, I think John McDonald did quote the book back at you, Labour's shadow chancellor. It's, it's quite a left-wing agenda, isn't it, for someone who is supposedly an impartial political editor of a, of a broadcaster subject to Ofcom regulation? So I would sort of challenge that because um, I don't think it is, uh, you know, left-wing or right-wing. I think uh, that the book... the bo so, so the conservative dimension then? Because... So let's look at... Um, let's, you know... So go back to first principles in terms of why I'm completely comfortable with what I've said. So first of all, um, one of the things that I don't do anywhere in the book is get into party political, uh, sure. you know, this party's good, that party's bad stuff. And indeed, uh, you know, I was absolutely um, clear in my mind that that was not what was appropriate. Not, not, you know, not, not, not because I just didn't think that's appropriate to the times, not because I was sort of censoring myself, but broadly what I wanted to do, look at was the fundamental causes of millions of people uh, deciding they wanted to kick the establishment, whether it's through the vote for Trump or the vote for Brexit, um, and then look at what those votes really meant in terms of how we have to change the way we do politics and how we run the economy. Now, you know, the, the policies that I come up with, I don't think you can characterise as conventionally left-wing or right-wing. I'll give you an example, right? So, yes, of course, I do talk in the book about a wealth tax, right? So why do I talk about the need for a wealth tax? It is because there are, there, there, there are sort of two reasons for it. One is because, uh, and, I th and I think there's a consensus actually across the parties on this, that you know, we are having trouble providing our public services with the funding that they require. Uh, social care, the health service, schools, you know, I think that there's a very strong case for saying they all need over the long term more money, particularly because, uh, you know, we face this great skills challenge because of the economic changes that we're going through. And we're an aging society. So for both of these reasons, you know, our public services, both these big reasons are, you know, public services are under 
pressure. Now, you arguably, we have reached the limits of what we can raise from assault, the assortment of income taxes. What I'm really talking about here is a shift from income taxes more towards wealth taxes, and for two reasons. One is because there is a huge pot of effectively untapped money there. And also, if you look at the unfairness of um, you know, the way we run our economies, and you know, I've talked about this before, Tim, the great unfairness is, is, is in terms of ownership of assets and ownership of wealth. If you want to look for inequalities, the big inequalities are not so much in income, they are in wealth. Now, uh, you know, and let's be absolutely clear again, this is something that the Tory party at the last election recognised. Um, you know, the, 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 the only eye-catching policy they had, I mean, you, you would arguably, you know, the mistake with that policy was it was regressive. It particularly hit those who were going to be vulnerable to illness. But the only eye-catching policy they had was a wealth tax. It was that tax on, the, on, on people's properties yeah. to pay for dementia. So the notion that a wealth tax is a left-wing policy, let's be clear, the Labour Party hasn't even signed up to a bloody wealth tax. Um, so, you know, I... I, I I absolutely dispute, I just say that wealth tax is, is a tax whose time has come. And I say one of the things I say in the book is, let's be clear, of course I understand that there are lots of people who happen uh, by luck to be living in very valuable homes, for example, but don't have very high income. So what I say in the book is you, don't you wouldn't have to pay the tax in cash. It would be an IOU at perhaps at the rate of something like 2% a year. It would raise a very substantial amount of tens of billions of pounds. And broadly, as an individual, you would pay the tax either when you sell the property or when you die. Um, but for the government, that guarantee of that future income would allow you to borrow huge sums at almost no interest costs. Um, so I do regard it as a fair tax. And I do think that, I mean, I'd be staggered, frankly, if we don't end up Robert. seeing our mainstream parties, you know, basically adopting that kind of a, approach. Because, as I say, we have got creaking public services and we've got to pay for them somehow. Robert, I've got to go word in edgeways. And Aisha must, Aisha must. But just on... Look, I wrote a column for the Times when I was there advocating a mansion tax, basically. Yeah. I'm with you on the specific issue. Wealth inequality is widening. That's the problem, not income inequality. Yeah. But I think, I think you're dodging, and you wouldn't let an interviewee on Pested on Sunday get away with what I'm letting you get away with, and that's the broad thrust, though, of your policies is of a bigger state. It's more intervention. Now, I think that's perfectly justifiable, and I think Conservatives have got to make peace with government to a large extent and I think Theresa May is beginning to do that but it is nonetheless whatever the merits of the individual policies is is it right for the political editor of ITV uh, one of the biggest political jobs in broadcasting to be taking such position people need to look at you when you're on the 10 o'clock news and see someone who's a reporter not a commentator don't they well hang on a second so again if I were uh saying, which I'm not, that this or that Tory policy or this or that Labour policy was the bee's knees. I would agree with you. But the notion... Look... Just because you don't call them Labour or Tory, you're not really fooling no, 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 people no, 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 where these policies okay, are coming from. So I'm now going to this in the way that you know, I am absolutely passionate about, right... Which is this. I think you are making the mistake, which lots of people do, of confusing 
impartial journalism with bland two arguments that are contradictory should have the same weight journalism. So, you know, my approach to journalism, and I, you know, I have always prided myself, even before I went into television, joined the BBC as being somebody who tried to be impartial, is to look at the evidence and then draw conclusions, right? And everything that I say in this book is based on evidence is based on research. Now, I'm not saying that my only proposals and my only conclusions are exclusively, you know, the ones that are, you know, you know, that one could adopt. But I am failing in my job as an impartial journalist who's a proper journalist, as opposed to a bland, useless journalist. I am failing in my job if I do not take the evidence and draw conclusions. And that is, and so, you know, so I do absolutely take the view that I am not in remotely in breach of um, Ofcom regulations or in breach of impartiality. And, you know, and, you know, because this is the sort of journalism I've basically done since I, since I went into television, since I joined the BBC, you know, back at the beginning of 2006. And, and, and one just final thing on this, you know, the reason I'm completely confident about this, okay, is because Vote Leave made a complaint about me during the EU referendum and they said that, and, you know, and they said that my journalism was not impartial when I said things like, which I did do, that the weight of evidence was not that Brexit would be an economic catastrophe, because I never said that, but I said the weight of evidence was there would be an economic slowdown, not, not devastating, but there would be a slowdown if we voted to leave. Um, you know, Ofcom looked at the complaint and threw it out. Um, and, you know, so uh, the, the role of, as I say, of the impartial journalist is not to say two completely contradictory arguments can both hold and you've got to give equal airtime and equal weight to them. The, work, the role of the impartial journalist is to look at the evidence and say, on the balance of probability, this argument looks like a slightly better argument. Okay. Well, I'm going to come in sort of pushing back against you, Tim, and in uh, defence, a traitor, traitor, I know. The, I, I actually thought that your book and your topics were quite refreshing because I think underneath, and this is a big part of the Unheard project, which is behind the big headlines and behind the obsessions, what are driving it? What are the conditions and the factors which are, are, are driving this, as you see, this kind of you know, um, disconnection with politics, this frustration at the elites, all of that kind of thing. And I think it was quite refreshing to see a journalist actually say, instead of just doing a critique on every single political party, actually here are some solutions that might work and here are some sort of policy things that might work. And I think most of the public don't see themselves as left-wing or right-wing. I think that's a construct that we as sort of commentators and political people, I think most people think of themselves as being quite common sense. And I think these issues of inequality, which we talk a lot about on Unheard and, and other things as well, are huge driving factors. And also, I think the public just do not believe. Now, I'm not suggesting that you're not being, that you are, like, I think you are impartial. But I don't think for one minute the public actually thinks that journalists across the board are completely impartial. Well, that is, it's and a, the conceit that we don't have, you know, I'm, I'm a great believer that, again, another condition of, you know, journalism that you can trust is being transparent about your views and your interests. So, you know, the, 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 the you know, I've never been a propagandist. I'm not a propagandist, uh, you know, and, but I do think 
that you can't do serious journalism without looking at the evidence and drawing conclusions. It's, it's no more complicated. But the other thing, just I don't know whether this is, you know, whether you regard this as a good or bad thing in terms of how you know, people would see my journalism. But the other thing I say in the book is I got some quite big things wrong over the years. And I'm very honest about that. You know, I, I got wrong the, the extent to which the way we run the economy would be seen by the majority of people as in their interest. Um, I was somebody who, you know, because of, you know, being absolutely obsessed with what was happening in China, for example, you know, I would go to China and see hundreds of millions of people being lifted out of poverty uh, by this economic miracle. And I would extrapolate from that that globalisation is this fantastically wonderful thing. And I, I'm afraid I slightly willfully ignored, like many of you know, you know, us dreadful members of the liberal elite, as it were, you know, I willfully ignored the fact that if you live in Sunderland or you live in Detroit or you live in the Rust Belt of France, that globalisation literally was not only doing nothing for you, it was destroying the quality of your life and your livelihood. Um, and, you know, I made a mistake to the extent to which I just thought, you know, the way we were running things was, was working for everybody, because it wasn't. And it was, a, it, you know, it, we, we, we did slightly, you know, the, w these people were ignored at, frankly, the peril of the cohesion of our societies now. In terms of where do you think we go forward from that? Because I think commentators, newspaper rooms, you know, television newsrooms were all soul-searching afterwards and saying, why did we get it wrong? But then you look around most newsrooms and you know chief commentators they're the same type of people middle class well educated oxford and cambridge how do you how do you change that uh so obviously you know we've all got to be much more you know imaginative in terms of you know wherever we work in just in terms of you know uh not not only who populate our businesses but also the people we listen to and the people we talk with and so you know one of you know one of the big things that I you know now do much 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 more is get out and about and listen to everybody much you know uh, you know I, I during the election campaign and I, you know I not the election during the referendum campaign I did a lot of traveling around the country and you know was very struck uh, that particularly sort of second generation Asians were saying that they were going to vote for Brexit and I thought this is odd um, but I was struck by it so I, I did think that you know Brexit I didn't think Brexit were going to win I mean you know and again this was this was this was because of another mistake I made I mean you know so I as somebody who's observed both as a political editor and an economics editor and business editor and different kinds of jobs over many many years I had observed that normally economic arguments determine the outcome of elections and because I was persuaded I, and I don't you know I think I was right about this I still think that Brexit um, I say not economic not economic not economically cat catastrophic but leading to a slowdown I just thought although there were other arguments for Brexit other than the economic ones I just thought at the end of the day the economic arguments would be the ones that in the end determined the outcome and I was just wrong about that because for millions and millions of people who'd lost all hope anyway of a better life those on the, those lower incomes being told that they were going to be a little bit poorer actually didn't cut didn't really matter in the context of they just wanted to punish David Cameron they wanted to punish uh, uh, Tony Blair and one of the things that that is both I think 
both sort of good and bad about Theresa May is that, you know, that, that uh, you know, and this has now become a bit of a cliche, we've all noticed this, but, you know, the, she got that on the steps of Downing Street when she became Prime Minister, she completely got the extent to which she had to, as the new Prime Minister, work to provide hope of a better life for those millions of people on lower incomes. And, you know, the great disappointment is they've done very little to follow through on all of that. But, um, but, 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 and, and finally on, on, on this, I'm, you know, I'll just say this en passant, just because it sort of ties into the extent to which, you know, there was a complete misunderstanding about what was driving the way people were voting. I remember George Osborne, as, then still as Chancellor, came onto my programme late on in the campaign, and he said, uh, by the way, if we vote for Brexit, House prices are going to fall very sharply, and the point. Well, and this, well, and, well two, so so if you're a young person, as you know, you, you probably you can't get the housing either. You think good, but actually, what was extraordinary about the coalition of people who voted for Brexit is it, you know, it was a coalition both of older people who happened to own their homes outright who were going to vote to leave because they've always had the EU. But the, the swing voters were those on lower incomes who lived in social housing and council housing or private rental accommodation for whom being told that the value of housing was going to fall, it just was, irre- it was an irrelevant argument for them. It just didn't just, cut any ice. Just to pick up on that, I think one of the reasons Osborne did that was because that argument proved very successful in the sort of tail end of the Scottish referendum. When the polls were looking quite neck and neck, a story came out in Scotland saying that if you voted to leave the e- like the UK, house prices were going to sort of plummet. So again, I think that was um, a, a continuation of, look, Operation Fear. Project Fear worked really, really well in Scotland. Let's do that again. Let's play into it. And actually, Project Fear didn't work in the EU referendum because exactly and when you feel like you've got nothing to lose being told that you're going to be like £5,000 worse off a year it's like who cares basically it's also I think and I wonder whether this is still a you're right about um, the gap between um, Theresa May's Downing Street step speech and the you know what her government's doing and we can look at all sorts of explanations for that but I wonder whether in journalism across society at large we're still basically on the same tram lines. I, I think a lot of what Brexit was about, well, it certainly was about economics, but it was about the loss of cultural identity, yep. the growth of insecurity. I think we're beginning to see um, the consequence, consequences of the, the breakdown of the working class, family, um, perhaps because of economic pressures, but I think there's, there's a real sense of alienation atomization and the, the wealth and yet I w- public policy is still carrying on the same way and w- which brings you us on to one recommendation oh. I loved in your book and that lots I did like I'm just um, d- just noting the balance of them um, was break up the treasury now if I could do almost anything in public life, it would be to break up the treasury it's the short-termist oh. economic obsessed um, institution in, at the heart of our public life and investment in sensible things like more social housing don't happen, even though they save money in the long run because of, because of, the, of the Treasury. But none of that radicalism seems to be on offer at the moment. No, it is disappointing um, that that isn't on offer. I mean, to be clear, under this government, 
the Treasury has, under Theresa May, the Treasury has been much more circumscribed than it was under David Cameron. I mean, George Osborne, like Gordon Brown with Blair, uh, was arguably in some ways as powerful as the Prime Minister. Um, you know, both Osborne and Brown as chancellors broadly controlled the domestic agenda. Um, uh, and that's not happened with Hammond. Uh, I mean, Hammond has basically been put back into a more traditional chancellor's role of, you know, dealing with what, you know, not even the big, cho not even the big choices of where the money goes, which is what Brown and Osborne were able to do, but just simply trying to make the sums add up. Um, so you could argue, but you could, we, we needed something radical. After. That's what people but, voted for. But and we've got caution. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And, 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 and you know, the, 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 in a way, as you say, the missed opportunity is that, I mean, I do think that you want prime minister, you, you broadly want to shift more power to the centre, uh, to when I say the centre, to the prime minister. Um, so long as you've got a prime minister who does engage in essentially long term thinking about the needs of the economy. The problem with the treasury is the treasury it's a, it's one of the few british institutions um that has still sort of tremendous memory a tremendous sense of its history and therefore it has a fantastic mistrust of planning it has a fantastic mistrust of anything that looks like the state making investment decisions it has a fundamental confidence in the markets and the operation of the city of London, um, which I think uh, has been misplaced for many, many years, but is particularly inappropriate at a time of such industrial upheaval. Um, uh, and and so, uh, you know, I do think that, that uh, this is a moment to confine the Treasury to effectively, you know, raising the money and monitoring that it's being felt you know it's effectively a finance function monitoring that the, mo the money is being spent re relatively efficiently um, but then decisions about the allocation should be should be much more one for essentially a could be a new department but effectively I think ultimately it is so important to politics the prime minister has to be much more engaged in all of that and again I think you just have to have you know, much more confidence in the ability of the state to finance long-term projects that ultimately um, lead to prosperity. So I am a great fan of an economist called Mariana Matsukato, who, um, you know, has done an enormous amount of really interesting work about the fact that broadly all the great industrial breakthroughs of the last 20 years have been made by governments, whether British or American, in particular American, and that the role of the private sector has typically been to make a colossal amount of money out of research, whether it's in the internet or the defence sphere uh, or the medical research sphere, but where all the really big risks were taken in universities or in public sector institutions. Um, and we've just got to, you know, we've got to be more confident in allowing... Space programmes. Yeah, and, we do. Uh, yeah. It is things like space programmes. And actually, the interesting thing, and I do think this is correct, you, you see, one of the, the really bold things, and I might get into some of this in the paperback, see, one of the really bold things that the government could be doing right now is it could turn Brexit 
into a fantastic, you know, industrial opportunity. What you would do is you would basically give, a, you know, a genuinely big chunk of money um, to all sorts of science and research, and you would simply say, come up with, you know, the you know the ideas that will make us a richer nation outside of the uh, and the city yeah, regions model gives us that opportunity know, so now we could have competing laboratories. So, yeah, so, 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 I mean, so, so, so if you're going to go down the Brexit route, then be bold about it. Say you know, look, 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 you know, view it as the equivalent of the space program. See, I agree with almost everything you said, but when I was in government as a special advisor, the Treasury was so powerful because of the characters at the Treasury. And, I mean, at that point, it was Alistair Darling and Brian was in number 10. But the people who have got to make the strategic decisions, whether they are in the Treasury or whether, whether they're in number 10 or whether they're in a separate sort of unit, they have to have that big vision for the country going forward. And I think that's the thing that's completely lacking. I think you can't solve a kind of personality and vision crisis with a kind of structural issue. Like, I don't understand why, for example... Family policy in this country is never seen as infrastructure. We see infrastructure as roads and rails. We don't see kind of caring for our older people or childcare as part of infrastructure. Whereas actually, if you made of all, if you sorted those problems, you would get so many more people into the workforce. You know, you would solve a lot of, I think, these other social problems and issues. But we don't have anybody, whether they're the Treasury or Number 10, who has got that vision to join up the dots in a way which is quite imaginative. Well, I completely agree with you in terms of, you know, if you look at what really helps uh, young people to achieve their potential, it is a stable family life with parents who care about trying to get their kids to, you know, achieve. And, you know... If I can say, it is one of the most beautiful parts of your book, the way it's framed in, as a letter to your father. Oh, you. And you clearly miss him a great deal. I know your family circumstances have been tricky over, very difficult in, in recent years, but it's, it's, it was beautifully done. Oh, well, that, that's, that's, uh, that's very kind of you. I mean, and, you know, I was, you know, I was lucky enough to have, you know, two parents uh, who just had enormous confidence in me and my siblings. We just went to the local state school and actually it was a very, look, it was a very good comprehensive. No, I'm not, you know, it was a great comprehensive, but I'm also pretty clear that the reason that, you know, academically me, me and my uh, brother and sister did well is because I had parents who sort of you know cared about books and cared about encouraging us to make the, mo the most of us and so I completely agree with you as we, that, that of course you know family policy is of course in, in, in pro proper infrastructure investment in that uh, in in that sense and and um, you know one of the tragic things about the kind of world we live in is how ossified um, our class structures become social mobility is not what it was that you know we would be a much happier more cohesive society if if everybody felt they had an equal opportunity one of the things which I find personally you know really upsetting is not only and God knows I mean what you, you well we'll come back to one of the things you talked about earlier I mean but but you know it's not just the sense of hopelessness that some people in, you know, difficult family and income circumstances have. It's also the extent to which those who are lucky enough to have big incomes um, 
literally have an almost killer instinct in terms of, you know, their attitude to what's appropriate to help their own children achieve. So it's sort of, you know, not only, you know, getting them into unbelievably expensive uh, top schools, but then, you know, you know, tutors round the clock. And, you know, this is, you know, there are two sides to the, the problem with social mobility. It's partly that we're not doing enough to help those at the bottom make the most of themselves, but it's also that it's too easy for those at the top when you get these sorts of wealth and income inequalities to pull up the ladder um, so that others can't climb up. And, and, that, that is, and that's, one of the, that's one of the reasons I do, you know, talk about... I mean, I don't say that, to be clear, what I say about um, the charitable status of our, uh, you know, private, public... Or, public schools is not that there shouldn't be a charitable status I'm just saying they've got to earn it and the way they have to earn it is they have to demonstrate that they are behaving in a charitable way either with the number of people they take in scholarships or the work the way that they work with other local schools to improve them all, all I'm actually saying is if you're going to if you're going to give a charitable status to an institution, it has to prove that it is operating in the public interest. And I'm not sure that some of these schools are actually doing that sufficiently. That's all I'm saying. Well, Justin Greening, the education secretary, has been saying similar things, so I couldn't quarrel with that. Just to end, a yeah. final question from me anyway. Um, we are um, unheard ending the year uh, with a focus on the underreported stories of 2017. We're looking at technology, uh, religion, culture, politics. There was one time, I think, earlier in the year when 88% of CNN's news coverage in one particular day was devoted to Donald Trump. We have these two massive events, Brexit and Trump, gobbling up all the oxygen. D do you worry, as someone obviously has given their professional life to journalism and inquiry into truth and highlight issues that electorates and public policy minutes, that in this focus on these two phenomenon, we're missing important stuff and we might pay the consequences in oh, the no, years totally. ahead. I mean, no, hang on. So I completely agree with that, OK? My central argument of uh, this book, WTF, available now, uh, the central argument of this book is that the structural problems that this country has, we would have in the EU or out of the EU. I'm not remotely saying that the debate over Brexit is unimportant, but in my view, okay, we, you know, the, the big challenges that this country faces have nothing to do with Brexit. Nothing to do with Brexit. You know, whether it is, you know, productivity that has slumped now. Uh, well, we, we've been an underperforming productivity terms for as long as any of us can remember, but a productivity slump since the crash, um, which is now being extended for year after wealth, after it's sort of income crushing year. Um, you know, an industrial revolution where the rewards are disproportionately going to people at the top and um, where there is a genuine risk of millions of people being automated out of satisfying jobs. Um, Everywhere you look in this country, there are tensions. Uh, you know, you know, they're, they're, you know, whether they are uh, regional tensions or national tensions within the United Kingdom. You know that I, I am, you know, genuinely more anxious about not just the future of this country, but the future of 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 um, 
you know, the, 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 the Western I have been my entire life. And, and this relentless focus on uh, Brexit does seem to me to mean that, you know, the big debate we should be having, which is how do we make a fairer society that operates in, the, you know, is perceived to operate in all our interests is just not being had. And that could turn out to be an utter catastrophe. Your fear may be that uh, if there isn't the reset that Theresa May promised on Downing Street, if Trump's presidency, which it seems to be the way it's going, is a disaster, there's a risk not that we return to normal in inverted commas, but actually the swings get more pronounced potentially in democracy. No, I mean, I, look, I take the view. I mean, I wrote a, a, my previous book said if 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 we don't respond um, to uh, so how do we fix this mess? I, I said in that book, if we don't, you know, respond to this crisis appropriately, if we just try and, uh, you know, put sticking plaster on the banks, but we don't recognise the extent to which we have an economic model that is broken, we will see the rise of extremism. And we have seen the rise of extremism. Um, uh, now, to a certain extent, I would say there's a bit of pressure has been let off, has been released, um, uh, by the votes for Brexit and the votes for Trump. Okay, now Trump, some people think of as an extremist in that sense, but believe me, we could have a lot worse than Trump in, circum in certain circumstances. Um, but if, you know, if, you know, we don't address the underlying, if Trump fails to address, un, you know, to address one of the underlying reasons why he got elected, which was that millions of, you know, people not the very poorest in America, but those on middle to low incomes in America, if they don't feel that their lives are improving, there could be, an, you know, they, they could become, you know, e you know, they could be attracted by an even more uh, sort of hideous form of political extremism, which actually Trump himself is quite capable himself of offering. Um, and in this country, if our mainstream politicians don't start to fix this country... And, and, and improve the expectations and hopes or, or give people hope um, that their lives are going to get better, then I do fear that we will see people turning towards really hateful uh, politicians. Um, and we could even see the basis of, our, you know, I, I, this probably sounds too alarmist to most people, but I'm not persuaded that um, people's confidence in our system of parliamentary democracy is, you know, as utterly secure as we believe it is. Um, so I do, this is a very big moment. And so Robert, where do you, how do you think that is fixed? So let's say to fix some of the really deep structural economic problems will take a long time. They're not quick fixes. For most people, they see the easy short-term fix as something like take immigration, for example. So where do you think... Where does the tension lie in politics from that point of view? Do you, would you not pay a penalty if you spend the time doing the right thing and trying to fix the deeper problems that might take some time? Or are politicians under pressure to do those easy wins, which actually probably aren't even going to be that easy, on, let's say, things like immigration? Where do you strike that balance? So... Um, the, the fact that we haven't even yet embarked on you know a major program for example of 
house building, which the you know which which the markets would not panic about, you know, it shows the extent to which um, there are both opportunities and at the moment, you know, uh, you know, the, the, you know, it shows the extent to which you know people might perfectly plausibly say they are a bit disappointed in the lack of ambition of this government. It it, it was it's simply not, you know, that there are certain things that take a longer time to fix. So productivity, you know. Some of the investments that are required to sort that out are very, you know, are, are you know, are, are the work of years. They're not impossible, right? But there are some things that you could simply do in the short term yeah. uh, to sort things out, or or to give people at least a sense of hope that you were sorting them out. And one of them would be to embark on a rather bigger program of uh, social and affordable house building than we're currently. Doing. I mean, the other thing that I, you know, I, I do talk about. We are currently um, in this sort of mad position, and we have been since the crash, where basically the Treasury and, uh, has sort of abdicated responsibility for, you know, fixing the short-term growth problem and has transferred um, responsibility to the Bank of England. And, and and we have seen a tiny increase in, in 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 interest rates recently, but the cost of money is still, by all historical standards, extraordinarily low. One of the things that I think that one of the ways in which the uh, that policy has, in my view, failed, and one of the things that a government could re- re- fairly easily do, is to recognise the incredible economic disparities and income disparities and wealth disparities between different parts of the country. So, you know, the Northeast, productivity is 30, more than 30% lower than where we are speaking today in London and the Southeast. Incomes are more than 30% lower than they are here in London and the Southeast. Economic conditions in the Northeast are very different from how they are here. It is not impossible if you've transferred so much economic decision-making to the Bank of England to basically give the Bank of England a mandate to make sure that the cost of money in the Northeast and the availability of money in the Northeast is different from what it is in London. There's, there's long been an argument for saying the cost of money should be higher in London and lower in the Northeast. Now, the fact that, you know, you know the fact that we haven't done that and we're not, and, and you know, it's it's beginning to sort of permeate into people's minds that we've got to think more creatively um, about monetary policy. But the fact that that's, you know, we, these are not impossible things to do. And, you know, I, I, if you just think for a second about what it would mean to other parts of the UK for it to be recognised that they have interests that are important and distinct from those of London. I just think... You know, the symbolic power of these changes would be enormous, quite apart from the economic impact. Would you vote for Robert Peston to be Prime Minister or <laughs> Chancellor? Aisha. Let's not go there, let's not go there. It's a very, very appropriate vote. Well, look, I, I, I love the book. I'm giving it to, to a couple of friends oh, for okay. Christmas, and um, we'll certainly be promoting it prominently on, yes, the, on the website. And... Um, it's been good of you to give us so much um, No, I love our time. Man, by the way. It's a, you, it's a brilliant initiative, so well done. Thank you. And Aisha, we will be apart now for a couple I of weeks. Know. No podcast we'll next Christmas week. Christmas break. We Christmas break, and then we'll be back in 2018. You're going home to Scotland? I am going home to Scotland, and I'm presenting a few shows on LBC as you well. Never, you never stop. I know. Girl's got to work. I've got to try and close that productivity gap. <laughs> you <laughs> are the productivity solution. I am. <laughs>
And you a typical Scot? You, is Hogmanay bigger for you than Christmas? I, or? Well, actually, I will be down here for Hogmanay because okay. I will be presenting um, a show. But I'll be having a big, big night out on Hogmanay because it's tradition. <laughs> but are you therefore going to be broadcasting the following morning? No, luckily, my last show is on the 31st. <laughs> um, well, look, thank you. Happy Christmas to you, Robert. Thank to, you. Um, you, Asia, Sean Glynn, who's holding the microphone and producing this podcast for us, and to all of our um, listeners and, and, and readers. Well, we'll have a full programme uh, between Christmas and New Year, so do tune into the site where we'll be focusing on what just talking to Robert about, which is the underreported stories of the year and um, why those stories are underreported and, and how that uh, gap idea, might be. Thank idea. you. Um, you can tweet when we launch the, uh, the, 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 the series. But um, if you do enjoy the podcast, please do uh, rate us on your normal podcast provider. That helps us a great deal. Until the new year, goodbye. Mm-hmm.